Story 5, Part 2 You see, dear brother, the cause of not loving God is want of belief. Want of belief is caused by lack of conviction, and the cause of that is the failure to seek for holy and true knowledge, indifference to the light of the Spirit. In a word, if you don't believe, you can't love. If you are not convinced, you can't believe. And in order to reach conviction, you must get a full and exact knowledge of the matter before you. By meditation, by the study of God's word, and by noting your experience, you must arouse in your soul thirst and a longing, or, as some call it, wonder, which brings you an insatiable desire to know things more closely and more fully, to go deeper into their nature. One spiritual writer speaks of it in this way. Love, he says, usually grows with knowledge, and the greater the depth and extent of the knowledge, the more love there will be, the more easily the heart will soften and lay itself open to the love of God, as it diligently gazes upon the very fullness and beauty of the divine nature and his unbounded love for men. So now you see that the cause of those sins which you read over is slothfulness in thinking about spiritual things, sloth which stifles the feeling of the need of such thought. If you want to know how to overcome this evil, strive after the enlightenment of spirit by every means in your power. Attain it by diligent study of the word of God and of the Holy Fathers, by the help of meditation and spiritual counsel, and by the conversation of those who are wise in Christ. Ah, dear brother, how many disasters we meet with, just because we are lazy about seeking light for our souls through the word of truth. We don't study God's law day and night, and we don't pray about it diligently and unceasingly. And because of this, our inner man is hungry and cold, starved, so that it has no strength to take a bold step forward upon the road of righteousness and salvation. And so, beloved, let us resolve to make use of these methods, and, as often as possible, fill our minds with thoughts of heavenly things, and love, poured down into our hearts from on high, will burst into flame within us. We will do this together and pray as often as we can, for prayer is the chief and strongest means for our renewal and well-being. We will pray, and the words Holy Church teaches us, O God, make me fit to love Thee now as I have loved sin in the past. I listen to all this with care. Deeply moved, I ask this Holy Father to hear my confession and to give me communion. And so next morning after the honor of my communion, I was for going back to Kiev with this blessed viaticum. But this good father of mine, who was going to the Lavra for a couple of days, kept me for that time in his hermit's cell, so that in its silence I might give myself up to prayer without hindrance. And, in fact, I did spend both those days as though I was in heaven. By the prayers of my elder, I, unworthy as I am, rejoiced in perfect peace. Prayer followed out in my heart so easily and happily that during that time I think I forgot everything, and myself, in my mind was Christ and he alone. In the end, the priest came back, and I asked his guidance and advice. Where should I go now on my wanderer's way? He gave me his blessing with these words. You go to Pochev. Make your reverence there to the wonder-working footprint of the purest mother of God, and she will guide your feet into the way of peace. And so, taking his advice in faith, three days later, I set off for Pochev. 
For some hundred and thirty miles or so, I traveled none too happily, for the road lay through pothouses and Jewish villages, and I seldom came across a Christian dwelling. At one farm I noticed a Russian Christian inn, and I was glad to see it. I turned in at it, to spend the night, and also to ask for some bread for my journey, for my rusks were coming to an end. Here I saw the host, an old man with a well-to-do air, and who, I learned, came from the same government that I did, the Orlovsky. Directly I went into the room. His first question was, What religion are you? I replied that I was a Christian and Orthodox. Orthodox indeed, said he with a laugh. You people are Orthodox only in word. In act, you are heathen. I know all about your religion, brother. A learned priest once tempted me, and I tried it. I joined your church and stayed in it for six months. After that, I came back to the ways of our society. To join your church is just a snare. The readers mumble the service all anyhow, with things missed out and things you can't understand. And the singing is no better than you hear in a pub. And the people stand all in a huddle, men and women all mixed up. They talk while the service is going on, turn round and stare about, walk to and fro, and give you no peace and quiet to say your prayers. What sort of worship do you call that? It's just a sin. Now, with us, how devout the service is. You can hear what's said. Nothing is missed out. The singing is most moving, and the people stand quietly. The men by themselves. The women by themselves. And everybody knows what reverence to make and when, as Holy Church directs. Really and truly, when you come into a church of ours, you feel you have come to the worship of God. But, in one of yours, you can't imagine what you've come to, to church or to market. From all this, I saw that the old man was a die-hard schismatic. But he spoke so plausibly, I could not argue with him nor convert him. I just thought to myself that it will be impossible to convert the old believers to the true church until church services are put right among us and until the clergy in particular set an example in this. The schismatic knows nothing of the inner life. He relies upon externals, and it is about them that we are careless. So I wanted to get away from here and had already gone out into the hall when to my surprise I saw through the open door of a private room a man who did not look like a Russian. He was lying on a bed and reading a book. He beckoned me and asked me who I was. I told him, and then he began. Listen, dear friend. Won't you agree to look after a sick man, say, for a week, until, by God's help, I am better? I am a Greek, a monk from Mount Athos. I'm in Russia to collect alms for my monastery, and on my way back I've fallen ill, so that I can't walk for the pain in my legs. So I've taken this room here. Don't say no, servant of God. I'll pay you. There is no need whatever to pay me. I will very gladly look after you as best I can in the name of God. So I stayed with him. I heard a great deal from him about the things which concern the salvation of our souls. He told me about Athos, the holy mountain, about the great supporters there, and about the many hermits and anchorites. He had with him a copy of Philokalia in Greek and a book by Isaac the Syrian. We read together and compared the Slavonic translation by Pesy Vilachovsky with the Greek original. He declared that it would be impossible to translate from Greek more accurately and faithfully than Philokalia had been turned into Slavonic. 
As I noticed that he was always in prayer and versed in the inward prayer of the heart, and as he spoke Russian perfectly, I questioned him on this matter. He readily told me a great deal about it, and I listened with care. I even wrote down many things that he said. Thus, for example, he taught me about the excellence and greatness of Christ's prayer in this way. Even the very form of the Christ prayer, he said, shows what a great prayer it is. It is made up of two parts. In the first, for example, Lord Christ, Son of God. It leads our thoughts to the life of Christ. Or, as the Holy Fathers put it, it is the whole gospel in brief. In the second part, Have mercy on me, a sinner. It faces us with the story of our own helplessness and sinfulness. And it is to be noted that the desire and petition of a poor, sinful, humble soul could not be put into words wiser, more clear-cut, more exact than these. Have mercy on me. No other form of words would be as satisfying and full as this. For instance, if one said, Forgive me, put away my sins, cleanse my transgressions, blot out my offenses, all that would express one petition only, asking to be set free from punishment, the fear of a faint-hearted and listless soul. But to say, have mercy on me, means not only the desire for pardoning arising from fear, but is the sincere cry of a filial love, which puts its hope in the mercy of God and humbly acknowledges it is too weak to break its own will and to keep a watchful guard over itself. It is a cry for mercy, that is, for grace, which will show itself in the gift of strength from God to enable us to resist temptations and overcome our sinful inclinations. It is like a penniless debtor, asking his kindly creditor not only to forgive him the debt, but also to pity his extreme poverty and to give him alms. That is what these profound words, have mercy on me, express. It is like saying, Gracious Lord, forgive me my sins and help me to put myself right. Arouse in my soul a strong impulse to follow thy bidding. Bestow thy grace in forgiving my actual sins and in turning my heedless mind, will, and heart to thee alone. Upon this I wondered at the wisdom of his words, and thanked him for teaching my sinful soul, and he went on teaching me other wonderful things. If you like, he said, and I took him to be something of a scholar, for he said he had studied at the Athens Academy, I will go on and tell you about the tone in which the Christ prayer is said. I happen to have heard many God-fearing Christian people say the oral Christ prayer as the word of God bids them and according to the tradition of Holy Church. They use it so, both in their private prayers and in church. If you listen carefully and as a friend to this quiet saying of the prayer, you can notice for your spiritual prophet that the tone of the praying voice varies with different people. Thus, some stress the very first word of the prayer and say, Lord Christ, and then finish all the other words on one level tone. Others begin the prayer in a level voice and throw the stress in the middle of the prayer, on the word Christ as an exclamation, and the rest, again, they finish in an unstressed tone as they began. Others, again, begin and go on with the prayer without stress, until they come to the last words, Have mercy on me, when they raise their voices in ecstasy. And some say the whole prayer, Lord Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, with all the stress upon the single phrase, Son of God. Now listen, prayer is one and the same. Orthodox Christians hold one and the same profession of faith. The knowledge is common to all of them. 
that this sublime prayer of all prayers includes two things, the Lord Christ and the appeal to him. That is known to be the same for everybody. Why then do they not all express it in the same way? Why not all in the same tone, that is? Why does the soul plead especially and express itself with particular stress, not in one and the same place for all, but in a certain place for each? Many say of this that perhaps it is the result of habit, or of copying other people, or that it depends upon a way of understanding the words which correspond with the individual point of view, or finally, that it is just as it comes most easily and naturally to each person, but I think quite differently about it. I should like to look for something higher in it, something unknown not only to the listener, but even to the person who is praying also. May there not be here a hidden moving of the Holy Spirit, making intercession for us with groaning which can't be uttered in those who don't know how and about what to pray. And if everyone prays in the name of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle says, the Holy Spirit who works in secret and gives a prayer to him who prays, may also bestow his beneficent gift upon all, notwithstanding their lack of strength. To one he may give the reverent fear of God, to another love, to another firmness of faith, and to another gracious humility, and so on. If this is so, then he who has been given the gift of revering and praising the power of the Almighty will in his prayers stress with special feeling the word Lord in which he feels the greatness and the might of the Creator of the world. He who has been given the secret outpouring of love in his heart is thrown into rapture and filled with gladness as he exclaims Christ, just as a certain elder could not hear the name of Christ without a peculiar flood of love and gladness, even in ordinary conversation. The unshakable believer in the Godhead of Christ, of one substance with the Father, is enkindled with still more fervent faith as he says the words, Son of God. One who has received the gift of humility and is deeply aware of his own weakness, with the words have mercy on me, is penitent and humbled, and pours out his heart most richly in these last words of the Christ prayer. He cherishes hope in the loving kindness of God and abhors his own falling into sin. There you have the causes, in my opinion, of the different tones in which people say the prayer in the name of Jesus. And from this you may know as you listen, to the glory of God and your own instruction, by what emotion anyone is especially moved, what spiritual gift any one person has. A number of people have said to me on this subject, Why don't all these signs of hidden spiritual gifts appear together and united? Then not only one, but every word of the prayer would be imbued with one and the same tone of rapture. I have answered in this way, Since the grace of God distributes his gift in wisdom to every man severally according to his strength, as we see from Holy Scripture, who can search out with his finite mind and enter into the dispositions of grace? Is not the clay completely in the power of the potter? And is he not able to make one thing or another out of the clay? I spent five days with this elder, and he began to get very much better in health. This time was of so much profit to me that I did not notice how quickly it went. For in that little room, in silent seclusion, we were concerned with nothing else whatever than silent prayer in the name of Jesus or talk about the same subject, interior prayer. One day a wanderer came to see us. He complained bitterly about the Jews and abused them. 
He had been going about their villages and had to put up with their unfriendliness and cheating. He was so bitter against them that he cursed them, even saying they were not fit to live because of their obstinacy and unbelief. Finally, he said that he had such an aversion for them that it was quite beyond his control. You have no right, friend, said the elder, to abuse and curse the Jews like this. God made them just as he made us. You should be sorry for them and pray for them, not curse them. Believe me, the disgust you feel for them comes from the fact that you are not grounded in the love of God and have no interior prayer as security and, therefore, no inward peace. I will read you a passage from the Holy Fathers about this. Listen, this is what Mark the Podvizhnik writes. The soul which is inwardly united to God becomes, in the greatness of its joy, like a good-natured, simple-hearted child, and now condemns no one, Greek, heathen, Jew, nor sinner, but looks at them all alike with sight that has been cleansed, finds joy in the whole world, and wants everybody, Greeks and Jews and heathen, to praise God. And Marcarius the Great of Egypt says that the inward contemplative burns with so great a love that if it were possible, he would have everyone to dwell within him, making no difference between bad and good. There, dear brother, you see what the Holy Fathers think about it. So I advise you to lay aside your fierceness and look upon everything as under the all-knowing providence of God. And when you meet with vexations, accuse yourself especially of lack of patience and humility. At last, more than a week went by, and my elder got well, and I thanked him from my heart for all the blessed instruction that he had given me. And we said goodbye. He set off for home, and I started upon the way I had planned. Now I began to get near to Pochev. I had not gone more than seventy miles when a soldier overtook me, and I asked him where he was going. He told me he was going back to his native area, in Kamenets Podolsk. We went along in silence for seven miles or so, and I noticed that he sighed very heavily as though something was distressing him, and he was very gloomy. I asked him why he was so sad. Good friend, if you have noticed my sorrow and will swear by all you hold sacred never to tell anybody, I will tell you all about myself, for I am near to death and I have no one to talk to about it. I assured him, as a Christian, that I had not the slightest need to tell anybody about it, and that out of brotherly love I should be glad to give him any advice that I could. Well, you see, he began, I was drafted as a soldier from the state peasants. After about five years' service, it became intolerably hard for me. In fact, they often flogged me for negligence and for drunkenness. I took it into my head to run away, and here I am, a deserter for the last fifteen years. For six years I hid wherever I could. I stole from farms and larders and warehouses. I stole horses. I broke into shops and followed this sort of trade, always on my own. I got rid of my stolen goods in various ways. I drank the money, I led a depraved life, committed every sin. Only my soul didn't perish. I got on very well, but in the end I got into traveling without a passport. But when a chance came, I even escaped from there. Then unexpectedly I met with a soldier who had been discharged from the service and was going home to a distant government. And as he was ill and could hardly walk, he asked me to take him to the nearest village where he could find lodging. So I took him. The police allowed us to spend the night in a barn on some hay, and there we lay down. 
When I woke up in the morning, I glanced at my soldier, and there he was, dead and stiff. Well, I hurriedly searched for his passport, that is to say, his discharge. And when I found it, and a fair amount of money, too, while everybody was still asleep, I was out of that shed and the backyard as quickly as I could, and so into the forest, and off I went. On reading his passport, I saw that in age and distinguishing marks, he was almost the same as I. I was very glad about this, and went on boldly into the depths of the Astrakhan government. There I began to study down a bit, and I got a job as a laborer. I joined up with an old man there who had his own house and was a cattle dealer. He lived alone with his daughter, who was a widow. When I had lived with him for a year, I married this daughter of his. Then the old man died. We could not carry on the business. I started drinking again, and my wife too. And in a year, we had got through everything the old man had left. And then my wife took ill and died. So I sold everything that was left and the house. And I soon ran through the money. Now I had nothing to live on, nothing to eat. So I went back to my old trade of dealing in stolen goods. And all the more boldly now because I had a passport. So I took to my old evil life again for about a year. There came a time when, for a long while, I met with no success. I stole an old wretched horse from a landless peasant, and I sold it to the knackers for a bob. Taking the money, I went off to a pub and began to drink. I had an idea of going to a village where there was a wedding, and while everybody was asleep after the feasting, I meant to pick up whatever I could. As the sun had not yet set, I went into the forest to wait for night. I lay down there and fell into a deep sleep. Then I had a dream and saw myself standing in a wide and beautiful meadow. Suddenly, a terrible cloud began to rise in the sky, and then there came such a terrific clap of thunder that the ground trembled underneath me, and it was as though someone drove me up to my shoulders into the ground which jammed against me on all sides. Only my head and my hands were left outside. Then this terrible cloud seemed to come down onto the ground, and out of it came my grandfather who had been dead for twenty years. He was a very upright man, and for thirty years was a church warden in our village. With an angry and threatening face, he came up to me, and I shook with fear. Round about nearby, I saw several heaps of things which I had stolen at various times. I was still more frightened. My grandfather came up to me, and, pointing to the first heap, said threateningly, What is that? Let him have it. And suddenly the ground on all sides of me began to squeeze me so hard that I could not bear the pain and the faintness. I groaned and cried out, Have mercy on me. But the torment went on. Then my grandfather pointed to another heap and said again, What is that? Crush him harder. And I felt such violent pain and agony that no torture on earth could compare with it. Finally, that grandfather of mine brought near me the horse that I had stolen the evening before, and cried out, And what is this? Let him have it as hard as you can. And I got such pain from all sides that I can't describe it. It was so cruel, terrible, and exhausting. It was as though all sinews were being drawn out of me, and I was suffocated by the frightful pain. I felt I could not bear it, and that I should collapse unconscious if that torture went on even a little bit longer. But the horse kicked out and caught me on the cheek and cut it open. And the moment I got that blow, I woke up in utter horror and shaking like a weakling. I saw that it was already daylight. The sun was rising. 
I touched my cheek and blood was flowing from it, and those parts of me which in my dream had been in the ground were all, so to say, hard and stiff, and I had pins and needles in them. I was in such terror that I could hardly get up and go home. My cheek hurt for a long time. Look, you can see the scar now. It wasn't there before. And so, after this, fear and horror often used to come over me. And now I only have to remember what I suffered in that dream for the agony and exhaustion to begin again, and such torture that I don't know what to do with myself. What is more, it began to come more often. And, in the end, I began to be afraid of people and to feel ashamed as though everybody knew my past dishonesty. Then I could neither eat, nor drink, nor sleep because of this suffering. I was worn to a ravel. I did think of going to my regiment and making a clean chest of everything. Perhaps God would forgive my sins if I took my punishment. But I was afraid and I lost my courage because they would make me run the gauntlet. And so, losing patience, I wanted to hang myself. But the thought came to me that in any case, I shan't live for a very long time. I shall soon die, for I have lost all strength. And so I thought I would go and say goodbye to my home and die there. I have a nephew at home, and here I am on my way there for six months now. And all the while, grief and fear make me miserable. What do you think, my friend? What am I to do? I really can't bear much more. When I heard all this, I was astonished, and I praised the wisdom and the goodness of God, as I saw the different ways in which they are brought to sinners. So I said to him, Dear brother, during the time of that fear and agony, you ought to have prayed to God. That is the great cure for all our troubles. Not on your life, he said to me. I thought that directly I began to pray, God would destroy me. Nonsense, brother. It is the devil puts thoughts like that into your head. There is no end to God's mercy, and he is sorry for sinners and quickly forgives all who repent. Perhaps you don't know the Christ prayer. Lord Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. You go on saying that without stopping. Why, of course, I know that prayer. I used to say it sometimes to keep my courage up when I was going to do a robbery. Now look here. God did not destroy you when you were on your way to do something wrong and said the prayer. Will he do so when you start praying on the path of repentance? Now you see how your thoughts come from the devil. Believe me, dear brother, if you will say that prayer, taking no notice of whatever thoughts come into your mind, then you will quickly feel relief. All the fear and strain will go, and in the end, you will be completely at peace. You will become a devout man, and all sinful passions will leave you. I assure you of this for I have seen a great deal of it in my time. After that, I told him about several cases in which the Christ prayer had shown its wonderful power to work upon sinners. In the end, I persuaded him to come with me to the poach of Mother of God, the refuge of sinners before he went home, and to make his confession and communion there. My soldier listened to all this attentively and, as I could see, with joy, and he agreed to everything. We went to Pochev together on this condition, that neither of us should speak to the other, but that we should say the Christ's prayer all the time. In this silence, we walked for a whole day. The next day, he told me that he felt much easier, and it was plain that his mind was calmer than before. On the third day, we arrived at Pochev, and I urged him again not to break off the prayer, either day or night, while he was awake, and assured him that the most holy name of Jesus 
which is unbearable to our spiritual foes, would be strong to save him. On this point I read to him from Philokalia, that although we ought to say the Christ's prayer at all times, it is especially needful to do so with the utmost care when we are preparing for communion. So he did, and then he made his confession and communion, although from time to time the old thoughts still came over him, yet he easily drove them away with the Christ prayer. On Sunday, so as to be up for matins more easily, he went to bed earlier and went on saying the Christ prayer. I still sat in the corner and read my love to kindness by a rushlight. An hour went past. He fell asleep, and I set myself to prayer. All of a sudden, about twenty minutes later, he gave a start and woke up, jumped quickly out of bed, ran over to me in tears, and, speaking with the greatest happiness, he said, O oh brother, what I have just seen, how peaceful and happy I am. I believe that God has mercy upon sinners, and does not torment them. Glory to thee, O Lord, glory to thee. I was surprised and glad, and asked him to tell me exactly what had happened to him. Why this, he said. Directly I fell asleep. I saw myself in that meadow where they tortured me. At first I was terrified, but I saw that, instead of a cloud, the bright sun was rising, and a wonderful light shining over the whole meadow, and I saw red flowers and grass in it. Then suddenly my grandfather came up to me, looking nicer than you ever saw and he greeted me gently and kindly, and he said, Go to Zydomir, to the church of St. George. They will take you under church protection. Spend the rest of your life there and pray without ceasing. God will be gracious to you. When he said this, he made the sign of the cross over me and straightway vanished. I can't tell you how happy I felt. It was as though a load had been taken off my shoulders and I had flown away to heaven. At that point I woke up feeling easy in my mind and my heart so full of joy that I didn't know what to do. What ought I to do now? I shall start straight away for Zydomir, as my grandfather told me. I shall find it easy going with the prayer. But wait a minute, dear brother. How can you start off in the middle of the night? Stay for matins, say your prayers, and then start off with God. So we didn't go to sleep after this conversation. We went to church. He stayed all through matins praying earnestly with tears, and he said that he felt very peaceful and glad and that the Christ prayer was going on happily. Then, after liturgy, he made his communion, and when we had had some food, I went with him as far as the Zydomir Road, where we said goodbye with tears of gladness. After this, I began to think about my own affairs. Where should I go now? In the end, I decided that I would go back again to Kiev. The wise teaching of my priest there drew me that way, and, besides, if I stayed with him he might find some Christ-loving philanthropist who would put me on my way to Jerusalem, or at least to Mount Athos. So I stopped another week at Pochev, spending the time in recalling all I had learned from those I had met on this journey, and in making notes of a number of helpful things. Then I got ready for the journey, put on my bag, and went to church to commend my journey to the Mother of God. When the liturgy was over, I said my prayers and was ready to start. I was standing at the back of the church when a man came in, not very richly dressed, but clearly one of the gentries, and he asked me where the candles were sold. I showed him. At the end of the liturgy, I stayed praying at the shrine of the footprint, 
When I had finished my prayers, I set off on my way. I had gone a little way along the street when I saw an open window in one of the houses at which a man sat reading a book. My way took me past that very window, and I saw that the man sitting there was the same one who had asked me about the candles in church. As I went by, I took off my hat, and when he saw me, he beckoned me to come to him, and said, I suppose you must be a wanderer. Yes, I answered. He asked me in and wanted to know who I was and where I was going. I told him all about myself and hid nothing. He gave me some tea and began to talk to me. Listen, my little pigeon, I should advise you to go to the Solovetsky Monastery. There is a very secluded and peaceful skeet there called Enzersky. It is like a second ethos, and they welcome everybody there. The novitiate consists only in this, that they take turns to read the Psalter in church four hours out of the twenty-four. I am going there myself, and I have taken a vow to go on foot. We might go together. I should be safer with you. They say it is a very lonely road. On the other hand, I have got money, and I could supply you with food the whole way. And I should propose we went on these terms, that we walked half a dozen yards apart, then we should not be in each other's way. And as we went, we could spend the time in reading all the while, or in meditation. Think it over, brother, and do agree. It will be worth your while. When I heard this invitation, I took this unexpected event as a sign for my journey from the Mother of God, whom I had asked to teach me the way to blessedness. And without further thought, I agreed at once. And so we set out the next day. We walked for three days as we had agreed, one behind the other. He read a book the whole time, a book which never left his hand, day or night. And at times he was meditating about something. At last we came to a halt at a certain place for dinner. He ate his food with the book lying open in front of him, and he was continually looking at it. I saw that the book was a copy of the Gospels, and I said to him, May I venture to ask, sir, why you never allow the Gospels out of your hand, day or night, why you always hold it and carry it with you? Because, he answered, from it and it alone I am almost continually learning. And what are you learning? I went on. The Christian life, which is summed up in prayer. I consider that prayer is the most important and necessary means of salvation, and the first duty of every Christian. Prayer is the first step in the devout life, and also its crown, and that is why the gospel bids unceasing prayer. To other acts of piety, their own times are assigned, but in the matter of prayer, there are no off times. Without prayer, it is impossible to do any good, and without the gospel, you can't learn properly about prayer. Therefore, all those who have reached salvation by way of the interior life, the holy preachers of the word of God, as well as hermits and recluses, and indeed all God-fearing Christians, were taught by their unfailing and constant occupation with the depths of God's word and by reading the gospel. Many of them had the gospel constantly in their hands, and in their teaching about salvation gave the advice, Sit down in the silence of your cell and read the gospel and read it again. There you have the reason why I concern myself with the gospel alone. I was very much pleased with this reasoning of his and with his eagerness for prayer. I went on to ask him from which gospel in particular he got the teaching about prayer. From all four evangelists, he answered, in a word, from the whole of the New Testament, reading it in order. I have been reading it for a long time and taking in the meaning 
and it has shown me that there are graduation and a regular chain of teaching about prayer in the Holy Gospel, beginning from the first evangelist and going right through in regular order, in a system. For instance, at the very beginning there is laid down the approach, or the introduction, to teaching about prayer, then the form or the outward expression of it in words. Farther on, we have the necessary conditions upon which prayer may be offered, the means of learning it, and examples, and finally the secret teaching about interior and spiritual ceaseless prayer in the name of Christ, which is set forth as higher and more solitary than formal prayer. And then comes its necessity, its blessed fruit, and so on. In a word, there is to be found in the gospel full and detailed knowledge about the practice of prayer, in systematic order or sequence from beginning to end. When I heard this, I decided to ask him to show me all this in detail. So I said, As I like hearing and talking about prayer more than anything else, I should be very glad indeed to see this secret chain of teaching about prayer and all its details. For the love of God, then, show me all this in the gospel itself. He readily agreed to this and said, Open your gospel, look at it and make notes about what I say. And he gave me a pencil. Be so good as to look at these notes of mine. Now, said he, look out first of all in the Gospel of St. Matthew, the sixth chapter, and read from the fifth to the ninth verses. You see that here we have the preparation or the introduction, teaching that not for vainglory and noisily, but in a solitary place and in quietude, we should begin our prayer, and pray only for forgiveness of sins and for communion with God and not devising many and unnecessary petitions about various worldly things as the heathen do. Then read farther on in the same chapter, from the ninth to the fourteenth verses. Here the form of prayer is given to us, that is to say, in what sort of words it ought to be expressed. There you have brought together in great wisdom everything that is necessary and desirable for our life. After that, Go on and read the 14th and 15th verses of the same chapter, and you will see the conditions it is necessary to observe so that prayer may be effective. For unless we forgive those who have injured us, God will not forgive our sins. Pass on now to the 7th chapter, and you will find in the 7th to the 12th verses how to succeed in prayer, to be bold in hope, ask, seek, knock. These strong expressions depict frequency in prayer and the urgency of practicing it, so that prayer shall not only accompany all actions, but even come before them in time. This constitutes the principal property of prayer. You will see an example of this in the 14th chapter of St. Mark in the 32nd to the 40th verses, where Christ himself repeats the same words of prayer frequently. St. Luke chapter 11 verses 5 to 14 gives a similar example of repeated prayer in the parable of the friend at midnight and the repeated request of importunate widow. St. Luke 18, 1-8, illustrating the command of Christ that we should pray always, at all times, and in every place, and not grow discouraged, that is to say, not get lazy. After this detailed teaching, we have shown to us in the Gospel of St. John the essential teaching about the secret interior prayer of the heart. In the first place, we are shown it in the profound story of the conversation of Christ with the woman of Samaria, in which is revealed the interior worship of God in spirit and in truth, which God desires and which is unceasing true prayer, 
like living water flowing into eternal life. St. John 4, 5-25 Farther on, in the 15th chapter, verses 4-8, to there is pictured for us still more decidedly the power and the might and the necessity of inward prayer, that is to say, of the presence of the Spirit in Christ in unceasing remembrance of God. Finally, read verses 23-25 to in the 16th chapter of the same evangelist. See what a mystery is revealed here. You notice that prayer in the name of Christ, or what is known as the Christ prayer, that is to say, Lord Christ, have mercy on me, when frequently repeated, had the greatest power and very easily opens the heart and blesses it. This is to be noticed very clearly in the case of the apostles, who had been for a whole year disciples of Christ, and had already been taught the Lord's Prayer by him, that is to say, our Father, and it is through them that we know it. Yet at the end of his earthly life, Christ revealed to them the mystery which was still lacking in their prayers, so that their prayer might make a definite step forward, he said to them, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. 